Um, turn to Micah chapter 4. I guess whether it's Micah or Malachi, doesn't really matter. Turn to Malachi if you want to, chapter 4, or Micah 4. Now turn to Micah chapter 4. In the Hebrew Bible, as a matter of fact, the uh, minor prophets are not called the minor prophets. They're called the 12. So all 12 books are just thought of as a, as a unit together. So in some senses, that's why, that's why Mike thought that, no doubt. I'm sure of it. So we, uh, a couple weeks ago, started in chapter 4 of Micah. Yes, there is a Micah in your Bible. And uh, we uh, said that in chapters 4 and 5, Micah is foretelling of the coming kingdom, the millennial kingdom of God, yet to come in the future. And this is right on the, on the heels of a devastating promise in, Ma- in uh, Micah. Now I'm going to start saying Matthew or something else. Micah 3, verse 12, that says... Zion will be plowed as a field, Jerusalem will become a heap, a heap of ruins, and the temple is going to be destroyed as well, it says. After that judgment, then Micah goes into this series or this section of hope for Israel, chapters 4 and 5 of Micah. And uh, he gives them characteristics that are going to be true of the kingdom, the millennial kingdom in days to come, that thousand-year rule of reign, uh, reign of Christ on the earth. And we saw four of those characteristics last time we met, two weeks ago. And just to review those quickly, look at chapter 4, verse 1 of Micah. The first uh, tr- uh, characteristic we saw of the coming kingdom would be this. The millennial kingdom w- will be prominent in the world. It's going to be prominent in the world. Chapter 4, verse 1 says, It will come about in the last days. The mountain of the house of the Lord will be established as the chief of the mountains. It's going to be raised above the hills, so it's going to be prominent. And then we saw second characteristics uh, of the uh, kingdom. The peoples of the world will come to Jerusalem for instructions. People all over the world are going to come to Jerusalem. That's true, it says, for instruction from the word of God, from God himself, as a matter of fact. Verse 2 says they're going to, they're going to say, Come, let us go to the mountain of the house of the Lord, uh, the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, that we may walk in his paths. For from Zion will go forth the law, even the word of the Lord from where? From Jerusalem, right? So that's where it's going to be happening at. Third characteristic we saw was that the Lord will be judge at Jerusalem. The Lord himself is going to be the judge at Jerusalem. Chapter 4, verse 3, it says that he, the Lord, will judge between many peoples, and he will render decisions for mighty uh, distant nations. So that's interesting. The Lord himself is going to be the judge. And then fourthly, we saw that Israel will be spiritually sensitive to God. They'll be spiritually sensitive to God in verse 5. They say this, though all the peoples walk each in the name of his God, as for us, we will walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. And so these are some of the characteristics mentioned. Let's go to the final characteristic tonight, verses 6 through 8, and then we're going to continue on with the next part of this uh, through chapter 5, verse 1. But the final characteristic mentioned of the kingdom is is in verses 6 to 8. Israel will be regathered in that day. Israel, Israel will be regathered. It says in verse 6, <clears throat> In that day declares the Lord, I will assemble the lame and gather the outcast, even those whom I, whom I have afflicted. I will make the lame a remnant and the outcast a strong nation. And the Lord will reign over them in Mount Zion from now on and forever. As for you, tower of the flock, hill of the daughter of Zion, to you it will come. Even the former dominion will come, the kingdom of the daughter of Jerusalem. He starts off by saying, in that day, verse 6, the same similar phrase in 
chapter 4, verse 1, that day, speaking of the beginning of the millennial kingdom yet to come. The statement here is uttered by the Lord himself, and it's relayed to us by Micah. He says, it says, declares the Lord there. He says, I'm going to assemble the lame, and I'm going to gather the outcasts together. Before Israel can enjoy the time of the millennial kingdom yet to come, they've got to be regathered from the worldwide dispersion. And, uh, you know, when, when, you, when you look at this and, and see this, the, the, a thought, the question comes to your mind, wait a minute, what about 1948 when Israel became a nation? Is that part of this regathering of Israel from the worldwide dispersion because they were scattered everywhere and in 1948 Israel became a nation. So where does that play into all this? And my answer is this. I have no idea. I'm not God and I don't know the answer to the question. There are those who think that, that, that it does play into it and there are those who think it does not play into the, to the, this end time millennial regathering. I don't know what it has to do with it. I, once again, I, I mean this when I say I don't know the thoughts of God on the subject. There's no way I can tell you that. We're going to just cover verse by verse here through Micah chapter 4. That's what our goal is tonight. And so God's going to regather the, his people, his remnant, before the millennial kingdom comes. Now we saw that in Micah 2.12 already. Look at Micah 2.12. This is not the first time he's mentioned this in this book. He says there, I will surely assemble all of you, Jacob. I will surely gather the remnant of Israel. I will put them together like sheep in the fold, like a flock in the midst of its pasture. They're going to be noisy with men. So he's already talked about this. In fact, he uses the same words here, the word assemble, the word gather, as he used it in Micah chapter 2. And there are many other times when a future restoration of the, of the people of Israel are mentioned in the Bible. For example, uh, I'm going to read to you, if you want to turn there a few books down, Zephaniah chapter 3. Just to show you, this is not some isolated passage. Zephaniah 3, 19 and 18. I'll, just, I'll read it to you. Zephaniah 3, 19 and 20, rather. It says here, Behold, I am going to deal at that time with all your oppressors. I will save the lame, uses the word lame, and gather the outcasts. Same words. I will turn their shame into praise and renown in all the earth. At that time, that time, future time, I will bring you in, even at the time when I gather you together. Indeed, I will give you renown and praise among all the peoples of the earth when I restore your fortunes before your eyes, says the Lord. And then in Ezekiel, if you want to turn there, Ezekiel 34, 11 to 16, another promise of restoration. There are many. I'm just giving you a couple to see that this is something that's taught elsewhere. <clears throat> Ezekiel 34, 11 says this. For thus saith the Lord God, Behold, I myself will search for my sheep and seek them out. As a shepherd cares for his herd in the day when he is among his scattered sheep, so I will take care for my sheep and will deliver them from all the places to which they were scattered on a cloudy and gloomy day. I will bring them out from the peoples and gather them from the countries and bring them to their own land. And I will feed them on the mountains of Israel by the streams and in all the inhabited places of the land. I will feed them in a good pasture, and their grazing ground will be on the mountain heights of Israel. There they will lie down on good grazing ground and feed in rich pasture on the mountains of Israel. I will feed my flock, and I will lead them to rest, declares the Lord God. I will seek the lost, bring them back, bring back the scattered, bind up the broken, and strengthen the sick. But the fat and the strong I will destroy. I will feed them with judgment. And so you have the, this idea of the future regathering of Israel. It will happen 
in a future day according to the Lord himself. It says, I, declares the Lord that this, this will be true. Notice how he describes the ones he's going to regather. Back in Micah chapter 4, verse 6, he says, I will assemble the lame, and I'm going to gather the outcast, even those that I have afflicted. The lame and the out, outcast and the afflicted. You know, the Lord compares his people to sheep often, a flock of sheep as we saw in Micah 2.12, sheep that are, you know, weak and are bound to go astray unless they're led by a shepherd. He speaks of the tower of the flock, as a matter of fact, in, in verse 8, as, as we see there. And these sheep he's talking about are not in the best of health. They are not well thought of. They are not uh, accepted uh, by others. He calls them the lame, and he calls them the outcast. He calls them the lame, literally the one who is limping. The one who is limping, he says, I'm going to assemble that one in that future day. It, it's the same word used in Genesis 32 when Jacob was wrestling with God in prayer all night. And, uh, and he wrestled, and, and the Lord touched the Jacob, the socket of Jacob's thigh and caused him to limp on his thigh. And after that day, Jacob was weaker physically but stronger spiritually. Same word is used there. In fact, he walked with a limp after that, just like these people are going to walk with a limp in the future day. The Septuagint, the, the Greek translation of the, of the Hebrew Old Testament, translates the word this way. It says, it says, I will assemble the broken one, the one who is broken. I'm going to assemble him in that day. Now, I remember um, I was in Tennessee years ago when I was in younger days, and we were, I was playing basketball with my friends there, and uh, I sprained my ankle really pretty good. I sprained it pretty good. And uh, I didn't know whether to put ice on or heat at the time, and neither did my friends. And they said, I've got a good idea. Why don't you put it in a, water, a bucket of hot water with soap in it? I said, that sounds like a great idea. So I sat there, and my ankle swole, and you're supposed to put ice on it. I didn't know it at the time. And then I drove home on the uh, bad ankle all the way from Chattanooga to Tampa and then hobbled around on crutches for a month. This is when I was at Clearwater Christian College, so I was carrying books with me with two crutches going to classes and trying to man, uh, you know, manage all this and go, going to doors and try to open them. I don't know if you've ever been on crutches or not, trying to open doors and so on. Very difficult. I was lame. I was hindered in many ways. And that's the way blind people are. They're hindered. They can't do the things they're accustomed to doing. They can't move like they want to move. They can't operate like they want to operate. And here's how the people in that day are described. As being lame, as being those who are limping. They're not at full strength. Limping around. They're not walking confidently. They're not confident, that's for sure. They're broke down. And Ezekiel 34.16 says about this, we already read it, God says, I will bind up the broken and strengthen the one who is sick. These are the kind of people that God is going to gather together as his remnant. <clears throat> then he says, I will gather the outcast. A very, another interesting word. The outcast here, it refers to the action of forcibly driving or pushing something away. It has to do with those who are thrust away, those who are banished by others. People don't want anything to do with these people. You know, it's true, the, the Jews have always been a nation of outcasts, right? They've always been those who were made to feel like outcasts. Many were deported to Assyria at one time in their history, and we're, we'll talk about that a little bit more of Babylon. Many, some were deported to Babylon within a couple of centuries of each other. And so they were out of their land. When they came back to their land, they were made to feel as strangers because there were strangers in the land at that time making them feel bad about being back in their land. 
And then, as Antoine pointed to last Sunday night in 1 Peter 1.1, they were, the Jewish Christians were addressed as the aliens who are scattered abroad. And so they've always been a nation of outcasts and, 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 and that dispersion, even in that time in the first century. Didn't become a nation until 1948, just in recent history, as we said earlier. And even today, there are nations who would love to, nothing more than to obliterate the nation of Israel. As, as you've heard on the news, probably, they say it. We want to destroy Israel. We want to get rid of them. We want to obliterate them. It's their goal. And so they're still outcast uh, in many ways. And they're this tiny little nation in the midst of all these nations surrounding them that are their enemies. And so it's a, always been a strange situation for them, always been a nation of outcasts. But there's going to be that time when the Lord's going to gather them together, his outcasts, together in the, in the millennial time. And it says, these people are those, in verse 6 here, are whom I have afflicted. Now we're told why these people uh, that are to be regathered are, are, are afflicted, why they're afflicted, rather. It's because the Lord himself has afflicted them. Now, this is interesting. It says, I have afflicted these people, the Lord says. Now, we don't like to think of, as Dave said this morning in Sunday school, we don't like to think of the Lord being this way. The Lord surely wouldn't afflict anybody, right? But he does afflict people when they, when they need to be afflicted. In this, in this case, maybe Israel was, had, was being judged. So God is afflicting them. God doesn't afflict people because he's vindictive or because he's mean-spirited, or because he wants to get back at someone, or revengeful. He does so because of our sins. Uh, people are rightfully being, be, rightfully being judged for their sins, as Israel often was, as we should have been, except Christ took our place, right? Christ took our place on the cross, and so we were not judged for our sins as we could have been. And Christ's righteousness was credited to our account. Thank God for that. And so, uh, but, but ultimately... These people, Israel, in this, in this future time, are not going to be disciplined by enemy nations in and of themselves, but they're disciplined by God himself. They're afflicted by God. And uh, Proverbs 3, 11, and 12 says this, My son, do not reject the discipline of the Lord or loathe his reproof. For whom the Lord loves, he reproves, even as a father the son in whom he delights. God disciplines his people. You know, for without discipline, the scripture says, then we don't belong to him, right? We're illegitimate children. So God is dealing with us, Hebrews 12 says, God is dealing with us as with sons and daughters when he disciplines us, when he, when he afflicts us. And there's times when we need to be afflicted. We need to be disciplined. Maybe we're sinning against God. And he's getting us back in the line. Maybe he wants us to grow mature in the Lord and stronger, and we're just not, we're not getting there, and he sets up something in our way to make us stronger. However the Lord goes about this, he disciplines his people. And he does this for our good, it says in Hebrews 12, so that we might share in his holiness, so that we might be more like, like God, more like his son. So remember that. If Maybe you're going through a tough time tonight. Maybe you're going through a difficult time. Maybe it's got to do with a job or on your job. Maybe you don't have a job. Maybe you're on your job and you're being, uh, having difficulties or in your life in general. And maybe God is trying to afflict you and discipline you to make you more like Christ. And we need to look up and say, Lord, what? What would you have me, have me to do? And so this is God afflicting his people. But he says also, I'm going to gather them one day, regather them. And so there's this hope that God provides for us. Notice what the Lord does with those whom he's regathered in verse 7. He says, I will make the lame a remnant and, I, and the outcast a strong nation. I'm going to make them a remnant and the outcast a strong nation. 
<coughs> it could also be translated this way. I will transform the lame into a remnant. God's going to do this work. Uh, and we saw that word remnant in, verse, in chapter 2, verse 12 of Micah. By the way, what's a remnant? We talked about it that one Sunday night. And uh, it is those who survive after a judgment in this context, those who survive after some kind of a judgment or disaster that takes place. And in Micah 4, 6, and 7, those who survive the dispersion are going to be the remnant. They are the ones who, who survive being scattered everywhere that God puts back together again. Now, the question is, does their survival depend upon them? Is it because they're resourceful and they're smart and they know how to survive and they're survivors? Is that how they do it? No, it's not, that's not how at all. It's because the Lord makes them survivors. He says, I will make the lame a remnant. God's the one bringing these people back together again. The Lord is the one doing this. As always, in all things, as Ryan pointed out last Sunday morning, it's always by God's grace that things happen. It's always because God is gracious to his people, and he initiates everything. He wants us to do our part, of course, but we do it in his strength. But always because God is gracious. It's always about his power. So the Lord makes the lame into a remnant. It says he makes the, the outcast into a strong nation. That's interesting. Those who are banished by the world, the outcasts, those whom the, Lord, uh, the world wants nothing to do with at all, these same ones the Lord is going to turn around and make into a strong nation in the future, it says. And it seems such a, a drastic and, and surprising change that he would do this because Israel's always been this tiny nation, always seemed to live on the edge. God's going to make them a strong nation. And so, so really we should not be surprised by this because the scripture says over and over again, is there anything too hard for the Lord, right? Is there anything too hard for the Lord? You know, if you recall that we've already talked about this, talk about things not being too hard for the Lord. The Assyrian army was at right outside the gates of Jerusalem camping and ready to come in and lay siege to Jerusalem and lay it waste and destroy it. And while they were camping out there, the Lord destroyed 185,000 Assyrian soldiers. We saw that. 185,000 Assyrian soldiers. Can you imagine being inside the walls of Jerusalem, being scared and afraid, knowing that you're going to be... Listen, it's never a good day when the Assyrian army is camping outside your gates, okay? That's never good because the Assyrian army were a, a military machine. They drove over people. They destroyed cities and buildings and walls and just massacred people. Brutal, brutal, brutal army. And yet the Lord destroyed them. And so there's nothing too hard for the Lord. No one expected that that would happen, but it did. And, and the same thing is true here. People say, well, can the Lord regather a remnant of Israel one day? He says he will. So I, I believe that he will. He says he will, and, and so he will. And it says here, the Lord, will, <clears throat> the Lord will reign over them in Mount Zion. He will reign over them in Mount Zion forever and ever. In other words, the Lord will be their king. No more foreign kings. No more uh, domination by other kings. No more when they were under the domination of the Roman Empire in the first century. No more of that. They're not going to be under any foreign ruler anymore. They're going to be under the Lord. It's going to be a great time. You know, in 1 Samuel chapter 8, when the people did not, when Israel did not have a king, God said, I don't want you to be like other nations. He said that repeatedly. I'm going to be your king over you. I'm going to rule over you. I don't want you to be like everybody else. All the other nations have a king. I don't want that for you. And Israel said, no, we want a king. They came to Samuel the prophet, and they said, we want a king. And this is very interesting. In 1 Samuel 8, 7, the Lord said to Samuel, 
Listen to the voice of the people in regard to all they say to you. You want to know what God's attitude was toward that whole kingship business? He says, listen to what they're saying. For they have not rejected you, Samuel, but they have rejected me from being king over them. They want a king? Okay, I'll give them a king, a human king. They've rejected me as their king. But there's, there's going to come a day in the future where there's going to be no rejection of God as king. God is going to be the king over them. And how long? He says, from now on and forever. In other words, during the millennial reign and on into eternity, God will be the king and the ruler. Look at verse 8. As for you, tower of the flock, hill of the daughter of Zion, to you it will come. Even the former dominion will come, the kingdom of the daughter of Zion. Um, when you see these phrases, you're kind of, at first, you kind of, kind of may wonder, what, what is he talking When he says tower of the flock, hill of the daughter of Zion, what is he talking about? Well, it's other, another way of describing Jerusalem, just another way of describing the city of Jerusalem. The tower of God's flock is Jerusalem, the capital city of David, and Jerusalem will, will in that day, will watch over the nation of Israel, and they will be like a strong tower that gives security to the nation in that time. And the phrase, the hill of the daughter of Zion, that is a name that described the southeastern slope of the hill uh, that led to the temple. That's where King David's palace had been in, in another time and place. And verse 8, verse eight says here, uh, concerning Jerusalem, to you it will come, even the former, former dominion will come, the kingdom of the daughter of Zion. The former dominion is going to be restored. In other words, the former dominion under David and Solomon was glorious. It was a tremendous kingdom that was, uh, and, uh, that was established under David's rule and under Solomon's rule. Fantastic kingdom, rich, wealthy, and all that, and blessed by God. Well, that former dominion is going to be restored in the future, he says here, and even more so because under Messiah as ruler, it's going to be even more glorious than ever it was under David or Solomon. And so this is the final characteristic of the, of the kingdom mentioned by Micah. Israel is going to be regathered. They're going to be made into a remnant. They're going to be made into a strong nation. Their glory is going to be restored during the millennial time. And God will fulfill his word to the remnant of Israel, as he says so here. And then we move on to another section of Micah chapter 4, 9 through 5, 1. And these are events preceding the kingdom. Events preceding the kingdom. Now, some of these, there's three events mentioned. Some of these events are close to the time of Micah, whereas one in particular are, is far away from the time of Micah leading up to the millennial time. Um, there are three events. The first, the first event we're going to talk about in these verses is pointing to the Babylonian captivity about 100 years into the future from Micah's writing. Babylonian captivity. That's verses 9 and 10. The second event has to do probably with Armageddon in the far future, the Battle of Armageddon, talked about in Revelation, verses 11 through 13. And then the third event reverts back to the humiliation of Israel's king in, by Babylon. Each of these events starts with the word now. Look at verse 9. He says, now, why do you cry, cry out loudly? Second event, verse 11. And now many nations have been assembled against you. Chapter 5, verse 1, the third event. Now, muster yourselves in troops, daughter of troops. And so, so that's how each, each section is started. First of all, we'll talk about the first event, Israel's exile to Babylon in chapter 4, verses 9 and 10. There's both the idea of judgment here as well as deliverance, as God often provides hope with judgment. Verses 9 and 10, let's read it. 
Now why do you cry out loudly? Is there no king among you? Or has your counselor perished? That agony has gripped you like a woman in childbirth? Writhe and labor to give birth, daughter of Zion, like a woman in childbirth. For now you will go out of the city, dwell in the field, and go to Babylon. There you will be rescued. There the Lord will redeem you from the hand of your enemies. We have a sudden change of subject matter, but that should not surprise us because as we've talked about already in Micah, as we've already seen in Micah, as we've seen in other prophets, the prophets can change gears real quickly, right, and real easily. They do it all the time. Kind of the prophets, think of the prophets like this, kind of like guys that are driving around a mountain with hairpin turns and they're driving a sports car and they're shifting gears quickly as needed as to go around the hairpin turns. That's how they are. They're always shifting gears back and forth. They may be here right now talking about the present time. In the next verse, they may be talking about the, the, sec, the second coming of Christ or the millennial kingdom. That's how they do. And so that's what he does here. Verse 9 says, why do you cry out loudly, Micah says, is, no, is there no king among you? Verse 9 is anticipating the prophesied exile of verse 10. And Micah asks rhetorical questions concerning the loss of the king in Jerusalem. For, for Israel to lose their king is a devastating uh, thing to them, a horrible thing. In fact, Kyle, a commentator, says this, the loss of the king was a much more painful thing for Israel than for any other nation. Why? Because such glorious promises were attached to the throne, the king being the visible representative of the grace of God and his removal a sign of the wrath of God and of the abolition of all the blessings of salvation which were promised to the nation in his person. It was a horrible thing. It would be a horrible thing for Israel to lose their king. And during this time, King Jehoiakim, one of the last kings of Israel, would be taken prisoner to Babylon, and they would lose him. And then King Zedekiah, who was made king by Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, would be taken also into captivity, and they would lose their king. And so Micah says, is there no king among you? Has your counselor perished? Kings back in that day, had, a, had one of the important jobs they did was counsel people. They, had, they made decisions, obviously, regarding the state. They gave counsel. That was one of their jobs. And so he's saying that their leader, their king, their counselor, their one that gave them guidance and leadership, the one they could look to guidance for, he had been taken from them. That is a devastating thing in the nation of Israel. It would cause tremendous grief. And so Micah compares the pain and grief of losing the king to a woman in childbirth. He says in verse 9, agony has gripped you like a woman in childbirth. And so that's, that's the kind of pain he's talking about. In verse 10, he continues this analogy of laboring in childbirth. He says, Ride and labor, labor to give birth, daughter of Zion, like a woman in childbirth. In other words, it's the idea of laboring, when you're in labor, twisting and writhing and pain in labor, how difficult that is. You, only you ladies know, right? Although, yeah, there's the argument about what's worse, being in labor or passing a kidney stone, I think it is, right? And then there's argument about that. We're not even going to go into that. <laughs> so that's, that's what, the, what he's talking about here, though, this idea of being uh, the pain of going into Babylon, Babylonian captivity, agony because of that. And there's another reason to be in agony, not only because they lost their king who would be taken into captivity, into Babylonian captivity, but it says in verse 10, for now you will go out of the city, Jerusalem. You're going to leave your city, your hometown. You're going to dwell in the field, and then you're going to go to Babylon. Now, that was devastating news 
the thought of leaving the city of Jerusalem, their hometown, with their familiar surroundings and all they knew and all they grew up with and all their families and friends and people they associated with. They're leaving all that because of their foolishness and their sin, and God's going to send them into Babylon because of his judgment on them. I mean, think about it. If, if for some reason <clears throat> our nation was able to be attacked, and God may allow that one day, I don't know, to the point to where we, some of us were, will say, even captured and taken to another country. Think about that. You're leaving your hometown. You're leaving your family and your friends and all that you hold dear here in America and your freedom. That would be a horrible thing for you. And that's what they had to go through in that time. They had to go through that. Was, it was an unthinkable thing to leave the city of God, Jerusalem. And that's why he says, for now you will go out of the city. That statement in and of itself is devastating. You're going to leave Jerusalem, the place of God's blessing and presence. And then he says, you're going to dwell in the field. Dwell in the field? What does he mean by that? Well, the journey from Babylon to Jerusalem, on the way they would have to camp out in the open fields. Now, there's some people here that don't like camping. They don't like the idea of camping out. They, they don't want any inconveniences. They want to be where there's complete and total conveniences. Some of you here, I'm sure, would never camp out as long as you live. Others of us like to camp out. Some people like to set up a tent, and that's fine. Have not, and they would say, well, you should set up a tent. It's advisable to do so because little animals can't get in your tent and things of that nature, snakes. Some of us like to get a sleeping bag and throw it on the ground and sleep that way. And others would say, well, you're a fool for doing that. <laughs> and some of us have been told that. <laughs> but some people don't like that. But this is not a camping trip here. It's not a camping trip they're going on. Oh, good, we get to go on a camping trip? No. The fields out there between Jerusalem and Babylon, wild, unprotected, crazy, uh, wilderness, wild animals, who knows what is out there. It's, it's just another, another point to add to the, the difficulty of leaving your own city and now you're going to go out to who knows what in the fields for a while. Another difficulty for them. And Micah knows that this may be a dangerous thing with all this wild, undeveloped land between Jerusalem and Babylon. He says, you're going to dwell in the fields. And then, on top of that, you're going to go to Babylon. That's the next stage in this whole, in this whole thing. You're going to arrive at your destination, Babylon. And this would not be a pleasure trip either. Some of us, you know, go on trips or vacations and here, to here and there. We look forward to going to this, this or that place. <clears throat> it's not going to be a pleasure trip at all. This is going to be a time of misery. Can you imagine in that day and age going to Babylon? I think it was like 900 miles away from Jerusalem. You're going to a people who are a military powerhouse. You're going to a people who you don't know what's going to happen to you, if you're going to be killed or tortured or what. You're going to a people where they speak a foreign language and you don't understand it. Uh, you don't, uh, with different customs and pagan gods. Of course, Israel wasn't doing so hot on that department at the time anyway. But when they, they want to see real paganism, they'll, they'll go there and see it in, in, in first class. And all these things they had, they had to deal with, and, and food and things that were different, and everything's different. And so this is a time of great agony and pain. And so he says, you're going to be like a woman in childbirth, and you're going to leave the city, dwell in the field, go to, go to Babylon. And, and the Babylonian captivity would take place, and it would last for 70 years, a time of great judgment for the people of God. But not all was, the news was bad. He says in verse 10, while you're in Babylon, he says, there you will be rescued. There 
the Lord will redeem you from the hand of all of your enemies. There's going to be a time of deliverance, of rescue. And the repetition of the word there tells us it's going to happen in the same place they were taken into captivity in Babylon. They'll be delivered from that same place. <clears throat> he says you're going to be rescued. word rescued means to be freed from some sort of being held fast. He said you're going to be redeemed, which means that you're going to be set free or liberated in a physical sense from Babylon. <clears throat> and who is the one who is doing the rescuing and redeeming? The Lord is. He says there the Lord will redeem you. The Lord's going to do that. And this is from a powerful enemy. Babylon's a powerful enemy, and God's going to redeem them from there. And you know the Bible always carry, also carries the word redeem in a spiritual sense. Uh, we're redeemed from, we're, we're bought out of, this, uh, of slavery to sin, and we're set free by Christ himself because of his death on the cross. It talks about that as well. We're delivered from our slavery to sin to the glorious freedom of the children of God, it says. And, you know, we didn't, and it's, and it's where the Lord finds us. He talks about that word there. It's where the Lord finds us in the situation he, he comes to us in. We're in our sins, and God takes us. We don't clean up ourselves first. He comes to us in the situation we're in, and he, cleans, and he saves us from our sin and cleans us up. And that's what the Lord does for us. And so the death of Jesus brings that about. But he talks about the word redemption here in, in Mike in a physical sense. And so the first event mention that takes place long before the millennium is Israel's exile into Babylon. And second event, an event is in verses 11 to 13. Many nations will gather against Israel. Many nations will gather against Israel. He says in verse 11, And now many nations have been assembled against you who say, Let her be polluted, let Jerusalem be polluted. Let our eyes gloat over Zion. But they do not know the thoughts of the Lord. <clears throat> they do not understand his purpose, for he has gathered them like sheaves in the threshing floor. Arise and thresh, daughter of Zion, for your horn I will make iron, and your hooves I will make bronze, that you may pulverize many peoples, that you may devote to the Lord their unjust gain and their wealth to the Lord of all the earth. I believe the prophet is shifting gears again, talking about a future time, a time in the future that you may know as Armageddon, pointing ahead to that time. Other passages coincide with this idea. For example, Joel chapter 3, Zechariah chapter 12, Zechariah 14, Ezekiel 38 and 39 talk about the same type thing. Many nations, it says, are going to be assembled against you, Jerusalem. They're going to be assembled against you. Revelation 16, 13 says, The spirits of demons will go out to the kings of the whole world to gather them together for the war of the great day of God the Almighty. There's going to be this battle that's going to take place in that day. Many, many nations are going to come to Jerusalem to battle against them. And they're going to say this. These nations are going to say this in verse 11. Let Jerusalem be polluted and let our eyes look on, literally, Zion, or let them gloat over Zion. Let's make fun of them. The desire of the nations of the world against Israel is to see it, see it polluted. They know it's a place supposed to be holy. They, they want to pollute it. They want to desecrate it. They want to dishonor it. They want to profane it. It was intended to be God's city, but... They want to make it profane. Remember the, the many times God says, put off your feet, uh, put off your shoes from where you're standing for the place you're standing on is holy ground. And they considered Israel or Jerusalem to be holy ground as well. And yet these people want Israel to be defiled and destroyed. They want to gloat over it. 
It's the idea of gazing at something with enjoyment or disdain. In other words, they enjoy the sufferings of other people. In this case, they enjoy to watch Israel suffer because they hate Israel for the passion, and they hate God. They want to enjoy looking at a defiled Jerusalem. <clears throat> they want to insult Jerusalem in her time of misery and take pleasure in that. And that's how the enemies of God are. They take pleasure in things that go bad with the people of God. They love it. They have tortured Christians throughout the centuries in many ways and taken pleasure in that. You know, Dave was talking today about what is our, our reaction uh, when we see people suffer, what is our reaction to be if God has caused us suffering? Well, Proverbs 24, 17. Do not rejoice when your enemy falls. Do not let your heart be glad when he stumbles, or the Lord will see it and be displeased and turn his anger away from him. And, and God says, I take no pleasure, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked. God judges people, but he has no pleasure in it. He does what he does because it's just. So our reaction to the misery of people suffering is totally the opposite, as Mike often says, totally the opposite of what the world's reaction would be to people suffering. Look at verse 12. He says, these people, these nations do not know the thoughts of the Lord. They don't know the thoughts of the Lord. They want to gloat over, over Zion's demise, but they don't know what the Lord's thinking. They don't understand his purposes. And the reason they don't know the Lord's under, understand what he's thinking is because they don't even know the Lord himself. They don't belong to the Lord. They don't understand his word. They mock at it. Their minds are blinded by Satan. It says in 2 Corinthians that God, Satan is blind in the minds of those that don't believe, lest they should see the glorious light of the gospel of Christ. And, so they, and it says here they don't understand his purpose. This unchangeable purpose of God, they don't understand it. They don't get what's going on. There's no way they can understand this. Psalm 33:11, the counsel of the Lord stands forever, the plans of his heart from generation to generation. <clears throat> you know, the ungodly nations of the world have this man-centered philosophy, right? This man-centered outlook on everything. So all they see is, is with the human eye. They don't understand God's perspective on anything at all. And everything that filters through their brain is from their humanistic point of view. So they don't understand his purposes. 2 Corinthians 2, 1, uh, 1 Corinthians 2.14, A natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him. <clears throat> he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. Only a, only a man saved by the, and a woman saved by the grace of God can understand the things of God and how God views things. And in this case, Micah says, in Micah 4.12, he says, the plans of the nations to destroy Jerusalem are going to backfire, completely backfire. Because it says he, in verse 12, the Lord has gathered them, the nations, like sheaves to the threshing floor. Sheaves, sheaves were bundles of grain that were brought to the threshing floor to be. Oxen would either walk on top of the, the sheaves or they would drag a threshing machine over the sheaves to release the grain out, beat up the grain and re beat it out and release it so they could have the grain. And God says, well, instead of these nations threshing Israel, Israel's going to thresh them in return. They're, they're gathering thinking, we're going to destroy Israel. We're going to pollute her. We're going to desecrate her. And then we're going to look on it with... with enjoyment and we're going to be glad we did it and God says no I'm going to turn the tables on you and that's not going to happen at all instead Israel's going to thresh you and destroy you they're going to be threshed like grain and they and they don't even understand that God's behind all this orchestrating these events they don't understand the thoughts of the Lord they do not understand his purpose for he has gathered he has gathered them like sheaves to the threshing floor and we'll go ahead and quit with verse 13 we'll pick it up next week in verse in chapter 5 verse 1 
Verse 13, he continues the thought. He says, Arise and thresh, daughter of Zion. Israel is commanded to arise and destroy their enemies at this point, in this future, future time. Arise and destroy them. How can they do this? How is it possible for them to do this and have the strength to do this? Because God says to, to Israel, For your horn I will make iron, and your hooves <clears throat> I will make bronze. In other words, the Lord will supernaturally equip Israel to do a supernatural job, to fight and win the battle against the nations. God's going to make them strong for the battle. So strong, it says, I'm going to make it so you're going to pulverize many peoples. You're going to just ground, grind them to powder to find us. You're going to literally destroy them. You're going to crush them to powder. And then he says in verse 13 that you may devo devote to the Lord their unjust gain. Devote means here means to consecrate the destruction. <clears throat> to consecrate the destruction. Remember in Joshua 7 where <clears throat> God told the people of Israel, look, go in and destroy Jericho and de just destroy the whole city. Destroy it because of their wickedness. And Achan, partook, he, instead of destroying everything, he took some of the spoils for himself. Oh, I think I'll get some of this for myself. And God punished for Achan that. That was to be devoted to destruction. Same word here. God wants to, he's going to devote their unjust gain the nations have acquired to destruction here. He's going to get all their wealth they've acquired and devote that to destruction as well. It's going to be a time in the future when Israel is going to be victorious over all these nations. And so <clears throat> these two events, we'll look at the third one next week, and it's probably just as well because the third one's going to contrast with the following verses. But let me just conclude by saying this. When studying prophecy, you might have a tendency to think, well, what has this all got to do with us? This is about Israel, about their future, about their past, about Babylon, about Assyria, about the nations of the world. What has this got to do with us at all? <clears throat> has nothing to do with me whatsoever, you're probably thinking. But there are truths in the passage, in any passage of the Word of God, prophecy otherwise, that, are, that have an effect upon our lives. There are certain truths that, that leap out from the Scripture that have a a direct implication for us. For example, number one here, we can see that in this passage, God has, still has a future for Israel. Chapter 4, verses 1 to 8. He talks about this future kingdom. It's coming, this millennial kingdom. What does that got to do with us? God keeps his promises. He promised that Israel would have a future, and Israel's going to have a future. Mark Dever wrote a book called, uh, uh, called uh, Promises, was it Promises Kept and the, uh, Promises Made in the Old Testament, and another book called Promises Kept in the New Testament. And God makes promises in his word. And guess what God does with those promises? He keeps them to Israel, and he keeps them for his people today. He makes promises to his people today in the word of God in the New Testament, and he keeps those promises as well. And then we can learn from this passage in Micah 4 that the Lord is a redeemer. We saw that in verse 10. Verse 10. Maybe physical redemption there, but we see often in the scripture, and we're reminded of this when we see that word, spiritual redemption that we have in Christ. Christ saves us from our sin and sets us free from sin and, and makes us free to serve him. There's another lesson we can learn. And then we can learn this lesson that God's purpose will always stand, verse 12. People may not understand the purposes of God. They don't understand the thoughts of God. But God's purpose is what he's purposed to do is going to stand. It's going to last. It's going to be there always. Whatever God has decided to do is going to happen, regardless of what anybody thinks. And nothing can stop it. And then finally... We learn here that judgment of evildoers will happen, according to verse 13. God is going to judge evildoers. And that, what does that got to do with us? Well, we want to warn them. We want to warn the wicked of their evil ways, warn them that 
God is going to judge. Warn them that they're going to spend eternity in hell. Warn them they need to turn to Christ. And that's for all of us today. And so Micah here, Micah 4, Micah 5, as in all of Scripture, has something to tell us today. I'm going to do something a little different tonight as we close. Turn to 2 Timothy chapter 3. We're all going to read this together. <clears throat> 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. And we'll close with these two verses. When this was written, primarily had reference to the Old Testament. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. Think of Micah when you see this. Let's all read this together. Ready? All scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. All the word of God is essential for all of us. Let's close with prayer. Lord, we do thank you for your word tonight, uh, for whether it be Micah or whether it be uh, Luke, as Mike preached on this morning. We know it's your word. Pray we'll learn from all of it, be instructed out of all of it, and we pray we'll take heed to all of it. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.